Hi, everyone, and welcome to the global virtual panel of preeclampsia survivors event. We are truly grateful for all of our speakers and our sponsors, and thank you all for listening in today. At this time, I welcome our Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Lakeisha James. She's the CEO and founder of Designer Events by Lakeisha. Welcome, Dr. James. Thank you, Rajaline. So on behalf of Life Service Center of America, LLC, and Rajaline Sabat, we welcome you to a global virtual panel of preeclampsia survivors event. Speakers will share their stories and educate you on the condition. Preeclampsia is a condition that develops in pregnant women. It is marked by high blood pressure and presence of protein in the urine. Maybe you have had it or know someone that has it. We want everyone to know that we support you and you're not alone. So let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to the host, Rajaline Sabat. She's a motivational keynote speaker, five-time best-selling author, life coach, first-generation Haitian American, the host of Walk With Me podcast on JRQ TV, financial expert and CEO and founder of Life Service Center of America, which is endorsed by Lace Brown. Thank you so much, Gigi, for this platform. Thank you, Dr. James. So we're going to get started. Our keynote speaker is Dr. Nuwanko. She's a board-certified internal medicine and a fellow of the American College of Physicians, an honorary distinction awarded by the national organization that represents internists. She received a Bachelor of Surgery and a Bachelor of Medicine degree from University of Abdoin in June 1897. After completing her residency in internal medicine, she served as the chief resident at the Meharry Medical College. Dr. Nwanko is a founder of Internal Medicine Associates and is a healthcare advocate with a special interest in obesity. She devotes herself to giving compassionate healthcare to her patients who love her because of her personal health challenges she has faced. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our keynote speaker, Dr. Nwanko. Thank you so much, Dr. Lakisha James, for the uh, um, kind words. And thank you so much, um, uh, Gigi, uh, Regeline Sabat, you are amazing at everything you do. Um, I, you know, I was approached to, uh, by you to talk about uh, preeclampsia, and uh, I now realize that I do have a voice. Um, I got happily married about 22 years ago, uh, desiring to be pregnant. You know, in Africa, that was, you know, that's the routine. Nine months time, we're expecting a baby. But that didn't happen for 10 years. And, you know, eventually, I got pregnant 10 years after I mar got married. And this was at the age of 36 years old. Oh, I was so excited. I went into uh, watching programs. My favorite program then was A Baby Story, uh, listening to moms, uh, excited, um, home uh, decorations. And I found out I was having a daughter. So I um, uh, got her stuff ready for her room. Uh, shopping was now my, part, my favorite thing to do. And at 32 weeks, I went to see my doctor on a Monday morning and I had ultrasound to be done. And when he did my ultrasound, it showed that uh, I had some placental infection that, uh, and I had some calcification. And he asked me, do I smoke? Do I drink? I said, no, I don't do. I have high blood pressure. And I told him that I felt like the baby felt small. And he said, oh no, everything is fine. And that day for the first time, my blood pressure was 150 over 90. Even though I had had swelling a lot, but I never had high blood pressure until that day. And I did have protein in the urine. And being a physician, I asked him, I said, I think this is preeclampsia. What do you think? 
do you think you should admit me and observe me? He said, oh no, go home, everything will be fine. And I trusted his word and I went home and this was a Monday. Uh, and then on Wednesday, which was two days later, I woke up with a severe headache. And I, I, I was like crying. I asked my husband, please, can you get me some Tylenol? And he said, wait a minute, let's not do Tylenol. Let me take your blood pressure. And that was a good thing because my husband is an engineer. He's not a physician. And he took my blood pressure and it was 230 over 130. So we called the labor and delivery and they told me to come on in. And I told them, please, can you let my doctor know that I'm here? And I had actually sought this doctor out, researched him, and I thought he was who I needed to have. He was uh, head of the obstetrics and gynecology department in a school in Canada before he came to the United States. So uh, I trusted and relaxed and everything. So they did blood work. And when the blood work came out, my platelet count was uh, 30,000. It was less than 50. That was when I was so afraid. The doctor then ordered for me to be um, given morphine and given heparin. And I questioned that. I said, um, are you sure I should be having uh, um, uh, morphine? Because I know that this baby is going to be delivered. And they said, that's what the doctor ordered. And I asked him, are you sure about the heparin? And I just relaxed. But I was afraid and I to just shut my eyes, I, I was afraid that I might never open my eyes. So I just tried to stay up. But again, I was very tired being 4 a.m. And uh, after they gave me the morphine, shortly after I told my husband, it looks like my senses are leaving. And that was the last that I remembered. I went into a seizure. And then uh, the doctor who was rounding and covering for the doctor came in and I had an emergency cesarean section at 32 weeks. And my baby was born two pounds, 11 ounces at 32 weeks, small for gestational age. At 32 weeks, I ought to have had a baby who was bigger, which correlated to the fact that I was concerned that she was small. So from there, I was battling with my, in, with my life. And uh, I had two more seizures in 24 hours. And um, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was in and out of consciousness. I was in the ICU. And my husband was there by my bedside, he couldn't leave. Of course, the doctor felt he had done the surgery and left and went home. And so um, the blood pressure kept going between 230, 250, uh, in, and, uh, and he was concerned. And then the nurse turned off the monitor and he asked him, her, what are you doing? And then he got very disturbed and called his sister who is a nurse in New Jersey who told him, please call any doctor friend that you know. And he called and uh, they now uh, came to his rescue, called back the doctor to come get me treated. The long and the short of it was that they gave me, uh, um, they called in the neurologist because he didn't know how to manage eclampsia or preeclampsia instead of giving me magnesium. And um, they tried their best. Thank God, everything eventually calmed down. I didn't see my baby until a week after because I'd been in the ICU. Meanwhile, my baby had been transferred to another hospital because she was very uh, depressed at birth and the uh, NICU that um, she was in was not uh, equipped to take care of her. I found out when I saw her, she was intubated and that was the littlest baby I'd ever seen. I started crying because I didn't know if she would survive. I mean, her thigh was like smaller than my thumb. I'd never seen a baby uh, that little. 
and she stayed in the NICU for four weeks. Every time I would go to see her, I would depend on my friends because I'd had a seizure. I couldn't drive for six months. They would take me there. I would pass by the well nursery. I would see babies who were regular size. And that was so depressing to me. I couldn't have a baby shower. Uh, you know, I, I, I just couldn't have what I felt was normal, what I had watched on the television on the baby story. And this happened 22 years ago. Thank God my daughter is, um, um, is fine. She's in college, you know, she's doing well. But there are lessons for me to learn that, um, first of all, is that uh, being pregnant at the age of 35, I, in addition to the regular OBGYN, I should have had um, a high-risk pregnancy or obstetrician or a fetal maternal expert. Uh, because when you're that age, um, you're, you could have complications, you, co you could run into problems that the regular OBGYNs are not, um, uh, are not uh, able to uh, uh, do. So it's very important that any lady who is uh, above the age of 35, please, you need to have um, been under the care of a high-risk pregnancy um, expert. And that I found uh, after the fact. And then the feelings that I had, um, you have to know that your, your feelings are valid. Your feelings are valid. The feelings of loss of, you know, you've, I felt like I'd lost something, uh, even though I didn't lose my baby, so to say, but the loss expectations of, um, ha, you know, you having um, that you're going to have a, a normal pregnancy, everything is going to be fine. You're going to bring your baby back home. And then the baby is in the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks, comes home. Uh, by the time my baby came home, she came, um, I wasn't ready because I thought I, I, I couldn't uh, uh, deal with it because I was weak. Um, I also had HELP syndrome. I had hemolysis. My, my enzymes were elevated, so I was very weak. It was very hard for me to walk from the building to the parking lot. And I also um, had very low platelet count. So all that, you know, my liver was affected, my kidneys was affected, uh, made it very difficult for me to take care of my newborn. And, and so um, you have to know that your feelings are valid and that recovery for you might take longer than usual. Uh, pregnancy in itself um, is hard enough um, on a woman, and then you add uh, preeclampsia on top of it. So there's, uh, you, you really don't have enough time to bond with your baby. And in my case, uh, myself was in a different hospital. My baby was in a different hospital. So we, uh, we couldn't have that bonding. Uh, as a matter of fact, because of that, my breast milk didn't come in, and I had to pump. And by the time I, I could um, be with my baby, she wouldn't uh, suck because uh, she, number one, she was premature. And so her suckling reflexes were very weak. And, and so we couldn't make it happen. So, and then you have to be watched. You know, I had to be watched uh, uh, six weeks. I came home with uh, three blood pressure medications and things like that. And so what could have been done to prevent this? Like I said, is a high pregnancy obstetrician. And then, Taking a baby aspirin a day uh, from, I think it's, uh, I, for, I forget how many weeks of pregnancy it is um, that you need to start taking that, but you need to start taking a baby aspirin uh, if you are at risk uh, for, um, for preeclampsia, eclampsia, um, let me see. Uh, because um, this, would, this could make a huge difference. This could save your life. 
Um, so uh, also lifestyle modifications, uh, diet, exercise. I was also on the heavy side, uh, having a normal weight as much as possible before pregnancy, uh, controlling blood pressure, doing your regular exercises, eating healthy, avoiding caffeine, you know, are little things that one could do to um, have an optimal time when pregnant. So uh, thank you, Gigi. Um, this uh, looking into my experience brought back those memories, but I think that they brought it for good. Uh, to help someone who might be passing through um, newly uh, know how to deal with that. And, you know, there's support out there. Yes, there's support out there. There's the Preeclampsia Foundation. You can call them. Their website is preeclampsia.org. Uh, and they are there to uh, direct you to the resources that you need. Um, they are there to um, support you because there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with it uh, because my baby was very little and going to the pediatrician's office you, I would get comments like oh this baby is so little mm -hmm. and that would that was a trigger for me in the sense that my, I had been through all that and then someone was now commenting on the size of my baby uh, it wasn't the baby's size that their baby is little why wouldn't you you know not say something like that so those are little things that we experience and I, I, I had to um, navigate as best as I can and there's help for you. You don't have to be alone and I, I don't want you to feel alone either. So thank you so much, Gigi, for giving me the opportunity to share. Uh, I hope this will help someone. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Noanko. Thank you so much for being transparent and sharing your story. Thank you so much. Somewhere, somewhere, someone needs to hear your story. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that was my timer. <laughs> so our next speaker is Ivory Lipscomb Warren. She's a wife, angel mom of 40, IBF advocate, boy mom of, at 43, helping women purposely design a life they love. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Ivory Lipscomb Warren. Good afternoon. I am honored to be here. So I thank you, Gigi, for the opportunity to share my story Anyone that follows me on social media, I am infertility and, uh, and mom coach. However, I share my story just a little bit about uh, going through and navigating preeclampsia. Uh, when I became pregnant, I didn't, there's no family history of high blood pressure, but I was a type two diabetic. Um, so I'm going to start my story a little backwards to bring us forward to where we are now. Um, at the age of 35, which is 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility, and that was 11 years of marriage. The age of 40, I became pregnant naturally in 16 years of marriage. Unfortunately, we suffered a loss through that. At the age of 42, and after nine rounds of in vitro fertilization or IVF cycles, one failed embryo transfer, one successful embryo transfer that resulted, unfortunately, in another loss, you know, either it was three strikes, I'm out, or it was three times the charm. Um, and so I had a wonderful reproductive endocrinologist who told me I would be pregnant uh, by Christmas. This was in 2019. And I looked at her and I said, whatever lady. Um, and I allowed her to have faith and trust. And by Christmas, um, she was correct. December 2nd, we did a third embryo transfer. Um, and December 12th, it was confirmed that I was pregnant. And during this time, um, again, no high blood pressure, was a type two diabetic, um, overweight. I could have lost some weight as well, but there were no, besides those two, no major health issues. Um, 
had a maternal fetal medicine doctor, so an MFM high risk doctor. Saw her regularly. Went to monitoring every every week, every two weeks. Um, then we started to increase as I was further along in the pregnancy. And there was a time, um, one of the actual, my son was born on a Monday. On a Thursday, I had a monitoring session, and I happened to look, and I saw that my blood pressure was high. And high for me was in the one thirties, typically. Again, no high blood pressure, nothing's going on, but that alarmed me because that has never been um, in the 130s or high before. So nothing usually over 120. And, you know, she did what they told me is I asked and they said, just check, just continue to check, no problem. Um, fast forward three days, uh, it was a Sunday evening about 11 p.m. Something said, Ivory, check your blood pressure. I just happened to have a cuff at home, it's by my bed, nightstand. And I was like, well, let me just check. And so I checked it. It was in the 140. So a little alarming. Um, and that was probably because my body felt a little different. Again, I had a rough pregnancy. And so when I say rough pregnancy, that means that I was sick the entire nine months. That included hospitalizations. Sick so much so that I lost weight instead of gaining weight. Um, my doctor, thankfully, was very attentive. I was an advocate for myself, but she was an advocate for me as well. I came to one of my appointments actually the day after my birthday with bags packed. And what I told her was, you need to admit me. I gave her this long laundry list before I came in of what was going on. And she actually said, well, do you want to be admitted today or do you want to come back and get things situated? Here's my bag. Take me now. Luckily, my doctor's office was at the hospital. Um, and so they transported me to labor and delivery. So I was there for about two weeks. Again, no this is throughout the pregnancy. I wanted them to keep me until August when I was going to deliver. That didn't happen. Um, but I also had home health care. So I had a home nurse that was coming to administer fluids and check on me as well. So again, if we fast forward to that Sunday night, I checked my blood pressure, checked it the one time was in the 140s. My husband is probably military. He's an army veteran. So his excuse, well, his answer, not excuse, for everything is to sleep it off, go to sleep. Check it in the morning. Sir, that's not how this is going to work. Um, and he did not know. We don't talk um, in the community about preeclampsia. He did not know. We're first-time parents. Um, so while, yes, I did know and I knew about preeclampsia, I knew the signs to look for, he did not. And so, you know, we laugh about it now, but he understands the seriousness of it. I checked in five minutes and it was 150. And I believe the number under it was 100. It was high. I called labor and delivery. Um, and of course, they told me to come in. I had asked, do I need to bring my things? And they said, absolutely. We had, my due date was August the 19th. Well, hello. Um, however, we had scheduled a um, induction for August the 11th. However, that did not happen either. So at 37 weeks and five days, they admitted me to the hospital. When I got to triage, um, my blood pressure came back down. It was normal. It was in the 120s, low 120, probably at 120, if I remember correctly. And I said, please don't tell my husband because he's tired. Um, by this time, it's one in the morning. And she was like, no, this is how it works. And so we did an ebb and flow. And at one point when they administered the epidural, I actually passed out because my blood sugar, well, I thought it was my blood sugar. And I said, can you test me? I think my blood sugar is dropping. My blood pressure actually dropped. Um, and heart rate slowed down for both me and baby. Um, and so we had a, what I call waking up to a party. Everybody's in the room screaming my name to wake up. I didn't realize I had passed out. And so we went through that. 
um, had a C-section. Everything went perfectly. And as you know, you stay in the hospital a little longer and thankfully so after a C-section where we realized that, and I realized that my feet were swelling, my legs, I was not feeling well at all. Um, and so what they realized is that my, my pressure was so high. And so they transported me to, um, to the ICU where I received magnesium drips and also potassium as well. Um, luckily through this, my husband and my son were able to stay with me. And I spent almost two weeks um, after baby was born in the hospital to regulate because not only were they regulating high blood pressure, but they were also trying to regulate the diabetes. So the two caused a huge problem in trying to titrate, try to get the medicines right. And that took a long time as well. So I actually called my hospital room like I did in May of 2020 when I had to stay for almost two weeks. This is my apartment. This is where I need to stay. One of the things that I loved about the hospital where I was and where my doctors are is that before leaving the hospital, they actually made an appointment with a cardiologist um, at the practice at the hospital. So that way I can follow up with her. This particular cardiologist actually specializes in working with women who have suffered or going through a preeclampsia. Unfortunately, sometimes what they try to do is to regulate it um, prior to discharge. I was one of those patients who did not had to go on high blood pressure medication. Uh, my primary care physician was trying to regulate it. Nothing was working. And so luckily she was able to assist um, which included losing some weight as well, um, but were able to assist to make sure that everything was going to be controlled. And so I continued to see her as well. And so that is one of the things that I am really going to stress is that make sure that you're cognizant, pay attention to the numbers when you're going to your doctor's appointments. Um, sometimes we don't even think about those things. Doctors, nurses, medical assistants might say, okay, well, we're good and keep moving. Pay attention to those. If your body if you just don't feel well, pay attention to those. Any little thing, pay attention to and make sure that you have a medical team that is an advocate for you. The biggest thing and number one, I will say, is that you need to be an advocate for yourself. That is number one. That is important. But the second, make sure that you have a medical team that's going to listen to you. And if they do not listen, you need to get a second, third or fourth opinion. So that way that you're healthy, your baby remains healthy as well. Thank you, Avery. Thank you. Thank you, Ivory. Thank you for your story. And I love that. Be an advocate for yourself. We all have to do that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Our next speaker is Kara Drain. I can't pronounce your last name. Bell? It's Belt. Belt. It's Belt. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was simple enough. <laughs> Thank you. She's a patient advocate, educator, combat ichthyologist. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Kara Bolt. Hi, um, thank you for uh, having me here today. It's uh, truly an honor to be on the panel with all these other amazing stories. My story is not much different um, than the ones you've heard so far. Um, I am the founder and director of endpreeclampsia.org. We are a US-based uh, US nonprofit with a global audience of uh, 40,000 people who've been impacted by hypertensive disorders of pregnancy preeclampsia, eclampsia, health syndrome, and even gestational hypertension, and those with chronic hypertension. Our focus is on education, advocacy, and support, while also promoting uh, legislation and research. Um, I suffered a traumatic pre pregnancy 17 years ago. 
Uh, my story is uh, uh, very similar similar to Dr. Nwanko's. I uh, had uh, I developed preeclampsia at 31 weeks gestation uh, and had a two and a half pound baby girl. I suffered a placental abruption, uh, even though my blood pressures were very low, like ivories were. And, um, uh, you know, I really was in a hosp in the hospital sort of disagreeing with my doctors about whether we really did need to deliver at 31 weeks when I looked over at those low blood pressures. Uh, and they knew better than I did, of course, and uh, were they were inducing me at the time of my um, at the time of my, uh, my abruption, uh, we had a really great outcome as far as, uh, abruptions and preeclampsia goes. My daughter is now almost 17 years old. Um, but I felt profoundly lonely in my experience. No one that I'd ever, uh, met had had a similar experience to mine. Uh, and back in those days before, uh, you know, some of the social media platforms that are available today, it was hard to find other people that, you know, had shared experiences. So I'm truly thankful for this experience today, bringing people together. Uh, a small group of volunteers uh, from across the world and I began operating our uh, preeclampsia, eclampsia and health syndrome survivors global support network uh, on the Facebook platform. And we have grown uh, that audience from very small 2,500 members, mostly based in the US, to like I said, 40,000 members across 115 countries. Uh, we learned everything we could uh, through uh, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, ACOG, um, all of our US-based resources that we have available. Um, and But as our audience grew and became more global, we had to learn and research what the care guidelines were in other organizations in order to support uh, the members that we had. There really weren't resources and there really still aren't many resources um, other than um, our group where uh, individuals can come and get easily digestible and accessible information you know, you can go to lots of websites and get lots of information, but it's either inaccurate, uh, not up to date, or it's hard to understand the medical ease if you are not a trained scientist or physician. And so that is sort of our secret sauce, uh, really reading the research and translating it and helping teach uh, our members what is good science and what is beginning stage uh, of science? Because not everything that's published means that there's a, a change in what's going to happen with medical care. Um, and we also know that when changes in medical care happen, it can take 15 to 18 years for that new information to uh, sort of roll down through hospitals and physicians to becoming actual practice uh, care. And uh, so that is our goal really is to support um, people who've had preeclampsia or any hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, wherever they are, whether they're, you know, just been diagnosed, or they are, um, like me 16 years later, and they start having other potential health issues. And they come back and say, hey, we, we heard that, you know, our doctor said that, there's a risk for cardiovascular disease later in life. If you've had preeclampsia, I wanna know more about that. 
And so that's really our goal and what we do. Um, there's been some very uh, exciting research happening. If you talk to any maternal fetal medicine specialist um, and even many OBGYNs, they will tell you that the standard of care for uh, chronic, uh, or I'm sorry, for hypertensive disorders or pregnancy hasn't really changed a whole lot in 70 years. We've certainly had some you know, great updates and some great research, and there's a ton of research going on all of the time. Um, but it hasn't necessarily changed what's happening in the clinic between a doctor and a patient. Uh, we had the uh, ACOG's uh, task force on hypertension, um, and we've had the addition, as Dr. Nwanko said, of uh, low-dose aspirin, which does seem to be preventative in maybe 15% of pregnancies, uh, and that's certainly something to talk to your doctor about. Uh, however, um, you know, detecting preeclampsia has been the concern, right? Is it preeclampsia? Is it just a little anxiety with your blood pressure running up? You know, how long can we keep people pregnant um, before they get really, really sick? And, you know, we're battling the odds of delivering a healthy baby. So um, our goal is to really partner with other organizations as well. And we've uh, come across a handful that are doing some great work. Of most interest to us is that we uh, there is an early detection test uh, that is uh, sitting with the FDA waiting for approval. We are expecting that to be approved uh, sometime this year. It has been available in other countries for a while, but the FDA hasn't cleared it here because of sensitivity and specificity uh, minimum standards that the FDA requires. So we're hoping that having those tests available here will help uh, uh, detect uh, individuals who have a higher risk for preeclampsia, um, and hopefully they will get more and better care and at least more monitoring throughout their pregnancies and uh, for hopes of a better in, uh, better outcome. In addition, um, there are some new uh, therapies uh, that are targeting S-Split-1, which is a protein signal that uh, we know the placenta releases in uh, preeclampsia patients that seems to be what sort of triggers all of those symptoms that we experience. And we're really looking forward to some uh, additional research, ethical, uh, uh, safe research in pregnant women, which is, as you probably all know, doesn't happen, um, doesn't happen. And yet, as we can trial some of these therapies in healthy non-pregnant populations determined that they're safe, and then start uh, uh, testing them in pregnant women. We're very hopeful that we can at least buy women more time, ensure that they don't get as sick, and uh, hopefully deliver healthier babies uh, with you know greater uh, benefits uh, and long-term uh, positive long-term outcomes. Um, particularly for our Black, Brown, and Indigenous mothers who suffer racism uh, in medical medical care at alarming rate, having a standard of care that is given to all people, uh, including these early detection tests, I think will really improve our maternal health rates here, uh, particularly in the US. Um, and I just want to let everyone know that there are people, you see them all on the screen here today, that are here who have been through it, you aren't alone. And uh, we look forward to supporting you and helping you in your journey uh, with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Thank you.
Yes, thank you, Kara. Can you state the name of your company and, and where can folks find you? You can find us at endpreeclampsia.org. Um, and then our Facebook group, where is, which is our private support group, is very long because of algorithm reasons, but it's preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome survivors global support network. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. Thank you, Kara, for sharing your story. Our next speaker, someone sharing their screen already? Yes, Dr. Amberine. Oh, yes. okay. I'm sharing my screen. <laughs> okay, I have to read her bio. Can I stop sharing? Oh. Okay, I can stop that. All Thank right. you. Just a moment. Okay, one moment. Okay, so our next speaker is Dr. Amberine Zayman. Zaman Ruiz? Zaman. Zaman. Okay, thank you for that correction. She is a medical doctor with an MPA degree from Harvard University. She is alumna of the Edward S. Mason Fellowship for Public Policy and Management and Women and Power Leadership Program at Harvard Kennedy School. She was awarded Management and Leadership Certificate by Harvard University for coursework at Negotiation Clinic at Harvard Law School and General Management at Harvard Business School. Her social health care enterprise has impacted 35,000 plus women and girls in South Asia, Africa, and Turkey. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Dr. Abrin Zaman Zaman Riaz. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Ambreen. I'm based in Atlanta, and I'm going to walk you through my presentation. I hope it won't be too tedious, boring, and not too onerous. Give me a moment. I hope everyone can see my screen now. Yes, ma'am. All right. So let me walk you through. Um, I have a public healthcare enterprise that I started in 2010, and we were conducting projects, implementing projects in Ghana, South Africa, Southeast Asia, parts of Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, and Turkey. And we collected a lot of data while we were doing these projects. Um, and then we analyzed the data and we presented a part of that research during our delegation to KSA in Middle East. Um, it was live telecasted. And it's essentially my public health care enterprise was essentially focused on women empowerment and that included healthcare empowerment. And my particular focus and interest has always been on maternal mortality, because while I was living in South Africa, I saw a lot of that and I wanted to uh, do something proactively. Later, when I was working in um, Istanbul, it was a migrant crisis and I wanted to create um, something that was, um, you know, that could help the pregnant women at the time. As a part of my research, I gathered data and analyzed it, which, I, like I said, has been published in um, my paper that I published for Belfast Center at Harvard. And uh, let me walk you through some of the, um, so essentially it was based on the preeclampsia, the HIV and hepatitis B and C. Those were our main uh, concerns that we were looking at at the community. And uh, we wanted to see if we could establish a correlation between the socioeconomic disparities and the preeclampsia and the correlation between domestic abuse and violence. Um, domestic abuse and violence has always been a sort of subject of uh, great uh, interest for me because um, I have worked with uh, survivors of domestic abuse. And during my uh, social healthcare enterprise, 
while I was setting it up, I came across a lot of women and girls. So I wanted to see if there was actual correlation between preeclampsia and uh, domestic abuse. Also, um, the prevalence of HIV and hepatitis C, but that's not the topic of our discussion now. Um, I just wanted to include it because we had uh, that. And for uh, research purposes, you have to eliminate certain um, other aspects that might lead to um, certain outcomes. So these are the two women that we have. Uh, the names have been changed for privacy reasons. Maria was based in, um, she was based in Bangladesh and um, uh, Manta is based in Ghana and they're both um, within a certain age group. And uh, she, one had like a, both the commonalities between the two and then um, they're also not quite similar stories. So I wanted to just tell you how um, we chose our um, uh, demographics. Um, we had like a local um, enterprise working with us that had mapped out the demographics for us. They were about um, 200 women that were part of this study. And um, out of those, we picked the ones that uh, had a certain history and uh, we took their consent, obviously. And then we also had a control group uh, which did not have certain symptoms just to establish the correlation and to form a basic hypothesis. Um, so our first hypothesis being that domestic violence can trigger increased cortisol production, leading to increased incidence of preeclampsia. Um, this body of research on it that I relied on um, cardiovascular risk factors uh, do increase uh, the history, uh, increase the production of cortisol, and that can increase the risk of de developing preeclampsia. Preeclampsia, we've already heard, I don't want to go into medical details, I don't want to bore you, but um, it's a serious blood uh, condition that develops during, blood pressure condition that develops during the pregnancy, mostly after technical definition is after 20 weeks of pregnancy, and um, as the doctor mentioned, we usually start giving aspirin after the first trimester, that is after 12 weeks. And it's said that the chronic uh, stress puts your kidneys at rest. That leads to uh, development of protein urea, which is like uh, detection of proteins in the urine. And that's one of the main uh, ways how they classify it as preeclampsia. The second hypothesis being that the black women are more likely to develop complications of preeclampsia. Uh, there is again, certain body of research. We were not sure. So we wanted to go into the communities themselves and uh, gather the data, analyze it ourselves and see whether or not uh, this is what happens. So this is the methodology. I'll just go over it very quickly. I don't want to again bore you again. Uh, these are the geographical locations where we, did, we collected the data. Uh, Surveys were, uh, were collected through community health workers, midwives, and also over the phone. And um, 100 samples were conducted in Bangladesh, 100 samples. So we're trying to see if we take two women who live in entirely different um, geographically, they're very far apart, yet they have the same conditions. Do we, sign, do we see any overlapping factors? If there are overlapping factors, what could be the underlying conditions and how do we create interventions? So this is a result of, um, there's a long, um, like I mentioned earlier, we have uh, like all these tables and tabulations and 
whatnot, and I don't want to bore you with that, uh, but I'll just give you the results briefly. So women suffering from domestic abuse, um, we divided the groups into um, 30 women who had a history of violence, domestic abuse, 30 women who did not have that. That's the gold standard for research. You have a control group. And within that, we saw that those with a history of trauma and abuse had 63% higher risk of developing preeclampsia and 35% chance of developing complications and even death. So this was the common factor uh, in Bangladesh as well as in Ghana. And then the racial predisposition, we found out that the women in Ghana, it was 54% more likely to develop preeclampsia compared to their brown counterparts. And this uh, rate probably would be much higher if we had like a Caucasian population um, that we were comparing to, but obviously that was not um, our focus. Then the community support, this is the most important factor because this is what helped us to create the interventions and the programs. Um, the women who received community support had access to network of helpful volunteers, was 65% less likely to die from the complications of preeclampsia. Like if they had a network of group of friends or they had um, volunteers in, within the community who were helping um, them in, sen in some ways, um, who were educating them, um, checking on them. Um, and this is what we focused on then. So what we did, we developed the community development program. We developed these very simple brochures. We trained uh, the local uh, group of women, um, the midwives, as well as uh, we had these women who were willing to volunteer as the community leaders. And they went around. Um, we also created these very innovative artwork and charts uh, that could perhaps, you know, attract them and they could, um, you know, monitor their blood pressure every day or whenever the midwife came around. And that really helped to, you know, it's Pearson's law. Anything that you monitor tends to become better. And if you monitor and also document it, it uh, tends to increase exponentially better. So th that's what exactly what happened. And we not only... Uh, led to about 30% decrease in the overall maternal mortality rate within that community, where we also had a very good response. Um, and then we also helped them create this very simple way of connecting and communicating with people using mobile phones, uh, where we would just uh, send out a simple text and uh, they would respond that they were okay or not. So that is the end of the presentation. And I hope that it wasn't too tedious or boring. And I did not like bore you with all the information, but uh, this was a very important part of um, my research. And um, I hope you learned something from it. Thank you, Dr. Ambreen. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I have a quick question. How long did that, the cases, how long did it take you to gather that information for those cases? So we followed the pregnant women for a period of five months uh, from there. As you know, preeclampsia develops usually after the first trimester. So we would follow them from 2000, uh, in June 2015 to December 2015. Amazing, amazing. And what was the biggest difference that you saw between the two women in, in the different countries? So like I mentioned, uh, in certain ways, there were a lot of overlaps, but in certain ways, they were apart. I think um, the community approach uh, is something that because in certain, and it's also like a cultural dynamic to that, uh, because whereas in Bangladesh, they were very uh, comfortable talking about uh, their disease. But in Ghana, we felt people were more closed off. They wouldn't want to talk about 
their pregnancy so openly. So we had to convince them and have like the midwives uh, come in and like encourage them that it's okay to share your story and that it's not, um, it does not mean that you're not a good mother if you cannot carry your baby in a certain way, because there are lots of like stereotypes, stories, cultural innuendos that are attached to that. Um, and there's a whole background story. So I think that was the main takeaway. Got it. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much again for that. Thank you. Our next speaker is Meredith McCann. She's birth and motherhood photographer, storytelling galleries, styling and films, Austin Birth Award nominee 2021 and a certified birth doula. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Meredith McCann. Thank you so much for having us uh, here, Judy. It's such an honor. Um, my story is very similar um, to all of the previous survivors. Um, of preeclampsia. I uh, became pregnant with my first child in 2016 with my husband and we were expecting a baby girl. And very, very early on that pregnancy uh, became very complicated. And my OB, who I had a very strong relationship with, um, I had advocated for my, um, my health in many other ways. And so the two of us um, had a very trusting relationship. She referred me to a maternal fetal medicine specialist. At the time we thought my daughter um, may have Down syndrome and she was measuring uh, very small, but in fact, she said very casually, you know, this blood work may indicate preeclampsia. And I had no idea what that was. And we just kind of, you know, put it off to the side. And so through regular monitoring, um, we found that my daughter was diagnosed with IUGR or intrauterine growth restriction. I was about 24 weeks pregnant. I'd also experienced uh, abnormal bleeding throughout my pregnancy, which was terrifying for a brand new mother because every time I had a bleeding episode, I thought that I was losing my baby. Um, and thankfully I did not. Um, and then at about 20 weeks, 28 weeks pregnant, I went into labor and delivery um, several times <laughs> over the next two weeks uh, of just complaining of just really not feeling well. And my blood pressures were normal. There was no protein in my urine, um, but I just did not feel right at all. And when I was 30 weeks pregnant, I woke up in the middle of the night. It was four o'clock in the morning. And, um, I'm a woman of faith and I absolutely believe that the Holy spirit was like, Hey, you need to call your specialist right now. And I took my blood pressure. And for the first time it was uh, extremely high and I was experiencing, um, pain in the right upper quadrant of my, like right underneath, um, like where your liver sits. And it was a pain that I've never felt before. I've had extremely difficult and painful periods. And I, that topped all of that pain. And I thought maybe I was in labor. I called my specialist and he said, it's time for you to go to the hospital. My husband is a firefighter and he was on shift that night. So I drove myself 30 minutes up to a big city um, and walked into the ER and they looked at me like I was a little crazy. And so walked into labor and delivery. And I told my OB who happened to be on rotation that night, thank God for that. 
because she immediately ran uh, a liver enzyme test and was diagnosed immediately with HELP syndrome. And she took both of my hands and said, this pregnancy is done. It's been a long, complicated pregnancy and you can't birth here uh, because our hospital is not equipped for a 30 week baby. So I was transferred to a different hospital via ambulance and turned out that was the hospital that my maternal fetal medicine specialist also practiced at. So he met us there. Um, my husband came off shift and uh, drove an hour to go find me. And um, we had some imaging done that night and I was put on magnesium immediately and I felt awful. If you've ever been on the magnesium bag, you just feel hot and heavy and just awful. Um, and for about um, a day, I was monitored and we were just kind of taking it hour by hour. And at the very last moment, um, I remember the attending came in and said, we have to go now. Things that you've taken a turn and we need to go now. I had had a bradycardia. I was completely out of it. And I just was at peace and I knew that things were going to be okay. I just didn't know how sick I was. So I had a C-section and I delivered a two and a half pound baby girl. Um, her APGAR score was one and then it was eight. And um, I got to see her very briefly. Um, she was put on CPAP and then whisked off to the NICU. Um, and then um, the rest of my C-section was extremely traumatic. My blood pressure was all over the place. It would bottom out and then it would spike up. I lost a lot of blood. Um, and uh, the uh, anesthesia, the epidural that they gave me um, ended up wearing off early. And so I could feel part of the procedure. Um, and so I was just pumped with a lot of medicine over the next couple of days and very out of it, was not able to see my baby. And finally, after about three days of being on magnesium, I was able to see her and hold her. We bonded immediately, but I too also struggled with my milk supply, which was devastating for me because I placed a lot of importance on nursing. So I did everything I could uh, to increase my supply. And I just became a full-time NICU parent over the next two and a half months and just dedicated myself to making sure my baby was going to be okay. Um, and here comes one of my other babies. Um, hold on, sweetness. So after a couple years of spending with specialists and getting blood work, I, um, you have to give me a second, okay? <laughs> um, I became pregnant again and I was, had the same specialist and he told me that it would be okay. We'll follow the aspirin regimen. We'll take a baby aspirin. We'll take calcium. We'll take DHA. I had a fairly uneventful pregnancy. I felt very nauseated as one does sometimes when they're pregnant. Um, and I was able to go to 39 weeks and I had a successful C-section. I know. Um, and then um, on the day of discharge, my blood pressure started to creep up and up and up. And the nurse came in and said, you're not going anywhere. You have to stay here. And they put me back in labor and delivery. And I spent a total of eight days in the hospital back on magnesium. I had postpartum preeclampsia. And then my liver enzymes started to increase. And so they could do with postpartum health syndrome as well. And that actually was the most devastating because my recovery from my first time of having health syndrome was actually very good. 
Um, I didn't have any real issues. I didn't have blood pressure issues. I didn't have liver issues. Um, but this time around, uh, things were very different. I went home on three different blood pressure medicines, completely maxed out. The only reason my, my OB let me go home is because I had a postpartum doula who was training to be a midwife. And so she was going to come stay with me and my husband. And I spent a year in cardiology trying to figure out the combinations of blood pressure that were going to work. Hold on, sweetie. Um, and so, um, that was devastating for me also emotionally, um, because I thought everything was going to be okay. Um, I've spent a lot of years in counseling and I am not ashamed of that at all. I think that there is just so many emotions that surround birth trauma and, um, it's compounded by having complications. If you have a, a baby in the NICU or you have issues at home, um, you're exhausted you have this new baby and you still feel really crummy from the, uh, blood pressure medicines or, you know, your, your blood pressure is going up and down. And it was just a very confusing time for me. Um, and so I decided that I needed to completely just dedicate myself to that. There was a reason that I had survived. And so I, uh, became a volunteer for the preeclampsia foundation. Um, and I, um, helped them uh, deliver uh, blood pressure cuffs to women on telehealth. That was um, something that I was very passionate about. And I'm still passionate about, about telling mamas, Hey, monitoring and self-monitoring is your number one defense. And it's the easiest and best way for you to show your doctor, Hey, look, my blood pressures are creeping up or, uh, you know, my weight is creeping up or whatever it is that's going on. Um, you know, giving your healthcare provider that data is so important. Um, and so, um, I did that. I went through some training with them as well. And from time to time, I continued to volunteer with them. And then I also decided that I was put in this very unique position of being a two-time survivor. Um, I also could not ever have children again. I was told by multiple doctors that the third pregnancy would likely be catastrophic for us both. So I did take surgical measures to prevent pregnancy. Um, but I, I find myself in this unique position. And so I thought, how can I possibly transform my life? And so I left my career behind in education of which I went to graduate school and um, just walked away from that in 2020. And um, I've always been a creative. So I picked up my camera and I started taking pictures of moms and babies and moms birthing babies. And I love what I do. I am able to connect with other women who have experienced infertility or losses or complications. Um, and, you know, just being able to connect face to face with someone who is also a survivor is so important. Um, I also encourage you, if you are a survivor of pre-exempt and you find yourself alone, that there are a lot of groups out there that you can uh, get connected with online um, and preeclampsia. I've been following you guys for a while. Um, definitely Preeclampsia Foundation has Mama's Voices at, at the annual conference. Um, it's a great way to connect with other survivors of birth trauma as well. And I think, you know, when you have survived something like this and you're still a mother, like being, being able to take care of yourself physically and emotionally for your child is just such a great motivation. So, um, that has definitely, you know, being able to be there for my two girls has been um, just a miracle, frankly. So I'm just so, so thankful for that. Um, but I'll shout to the rooftops, definitely self-advocate, 
monitoring. If you feel if you feel bad, call your doctor. It's okay. You're not going to bother them even at four o'clock in the morning. It's just so important. So thank you guys for for having me on. Thank you, Meredith. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the Preeclampsia Foundation? And if someone wants to support the foundation, how can they do so? Sure. I'm going to preeclampsia.org um, to their site. And they do have a form online where you can submit if you're interested in volunteering. They uh, accept volunteers for all kinds of things, whether it's, you know, helping out with um, media or with uh, just special projects, um, even if it's just sending mailers. Um, so that's so important. Mama's Voices, M-O-M-M-A, um, and the M's are capitalized, um, is a, a wonderful place to get connected uh, with other survivors. Um, and I believe all of those links are all on the website because they're all affiliated with the foundation. So, and they, uh, they do have an Instagram presence as well. So you can go check them out there. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. You guys are so brave. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Like I said before, somewhere, somewhere, somebody needs to hear this. And your story is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Now, we do have one last speak, but before we proceed with that, I definitely want to let you guys know our sponsors. Without them, this would not be possible. Our first sponsor is Ragne Sinekis. She is the founder of World Women Conference and Awards, Women Entrepreneurs TV, Changemakers Coach, and Public Speaker. Michael D. Butler, he is the CEO of Beyond Publishing, Book Publisher, Global Speaker, Media Coach, Danielle Gomez, Keynote Speaker, Corporate Trainer, Executive Coach, Confidence Architect, and Author. Melanie Ake, she is the founder of Everyday Leaders, professional coaching and consulting. She is also a John certified John Maxwell team leadership coach. And myself, Dr. Lakeisha James, I am the CEO and founder of Design Events by Lakeisha. And after our last speaker, um, we're going to have questions and answers if you guys want to ask any questions of any um, of the speakers on the panel. And then we'll also have some closing remarks by our host, Rajaline Jabat. And then of course, we'll close out on prayer. Sounds good. You guys ready for our last speaker? Yes, ma'am. All right. Continue to have those pens ready and pads. Our last speaker is Courtney Smith. She's a co-host of Knock on Parenthood podcast, preeclampsia survivor and advocate and a preemie mom. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our last speaker, Courtney Smith. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to share a bit of my story and some of my thoughts about preeclampsia. Um, my story begins like with a lot of others who share their story very similarly. Um, I was 22 years old when I had my first pregnancy and about 32 weeks at a normal routine appointment, my doctor noticed that my blood pressure was getting higher and higher every single time I came into an appointment. So she asked me to start taking my blood pressure at home. And so that's what I started to do. I started to keep my logs. And she told me if I ever hit the blood pressure number, 140 over 90, to go into her office or into LND if it was opened. And I didn't really know what it meant. No one really explained to me why 140 over 90 was this like big number to really pay attention for. But I just kind of did what I was told. It was my first go around. I didn't really know anything. So about a week later, when I was almost 32, 33 weeks pregnant, I found myself I was taking my blood pressure and I hit that number and then I kept hitting it, hitting it after I kind of tried to calm down a few times. So I went to my doctor's office and they 
checked my blood pressure several times and faces like, well, maybe you just have gestational hypertension after they asked me all the questions of like, are you swelling? Do you have headaches? Things like that. And I never complained of any of those things. Um, I did have slight swelling, but I felt like it was nothing out of the ordinary from pregnancy because it was near summertime. I was in my third trimester. Of course, I'm going to swell. Well, about a week later, I had another routine appointment and I was sent straight to the hospital from that appointment for a 24 hour urine test. And that's kind of where they tried to check and see how much protein is in my urine. And they were kind of messing around with a bunch of different blood pressure medication to see how to stabilize me because after the 24 hour urine test results came back, my blood pressure was still shooting up super high and they wanted to keep me as pregnant as long as possible. So then I also got two rounds of steroid shots for my daughter because they expected for her to be born early. So that way she had that kind of extra strength for her lungs. So I got sent home on bed rest after that appointment or hospital stay where I stayed three days and I was about 33 on going to 34 weeks. So about a week later at 35 weeks and three days, I got sent to the hospital again from another appointment. And this time was just straight to delivery. So I got hooked up to everything. I got hooked up to magnesium, antibiotics, epidural, like all the things. And they let me labor for a little bit because I was already dilated three to four centimeters. And so he broke my water, let me labor for a little bit. And then they realized that my daughter's heart rate was decelerating really rapidly and my blood pressure was shooting up super high. And so I got rushed into emergency C-section where I had my daughter. Um, She was only four pounds when she was born and she was 17 inches long. So she was a tiny little thing. And they put her directly to the NICU uh, because in the OR I was in, they had a wall and or not a wall. Sorry. That wouldn't make any sense. A window in the OR to put my baby into straight into the NICU. And after that, my memory, my own memories of it is super duper fuzzy. I don't know whether it's the combination of the trauma, the drugs, everything. And so I got wheeled into a different room, recovery, everything like that. Um, I didn't end up meeting my daughter until she was in the world for 27 hours. I first saw a picture of her in FaceTimes of my husband in the NICU because I was still hooked up to magnesium and my health was so poor. I was unable to leave my room. And since she was in the NICU, she was unable to leave the NICU. So to kind of fast forward the rest of my story is I was in the hospital for six days because my blood pressure, it was so high and my eyes swelled shut. So I couldn't see. I had fluid in my lungs. I had basically name it, something happened. Eventually I was able to be stable enough for them to come home on lots of blood pressure medication. Um, I recovered fairly quickly of all the physical things. I was off all blood pressure medication by eight weeks postpartum, which is pretty crazy because I know that's not a lot of case for a lot of survivors. A lot of survivors end up having chronic blood pressure afterwards, but I was really lucky in the way that physically I was back to normal, like nothing happened to me, but emotionally, mentally, it was a whole different story, which is kind of what I want to touch on today. The emotional effects last a whole lot longer than the physical effects for a lot of survivors. It's a very traumatic experience and some survivors end up losing their babies through preeclampsia and that's a whole nother grief on its own. Someone touched on earlier about the grief of a lot of non-death griefs and that's something that's extremely important and I feel like a lot of people need to realize this is what happens to preeclampsia survivors is they're grieving the normal pregnancy experience. They're grieving a pregnancy if they never got to finish all the way. They're grieving the expected experience they had. They're grieving of not being able to meet their baby or they're actually grieving the death of their baby. 
And is it very difficult to come to terms with, especially something with preeclampsia, if many survivors are like me, they're the only ones they knew that had it. And that makes it extremely lonely because you think you're the only person in the world who's ever experienced this. You're the only person in the world who understands exactly what you went through. And that's really hard. And that's a really hard experience to deal with. And a lot of the emotional effects of it is, you know, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. A lot of survivors have post-traumatic stress disorder because of all the trauma that they went through with their baby and for them themselves. And a lot of times they're left on their own to figure this out. You know, most of the time, my experience when I went to my six-week checkup, it was kind of like, oh, you're great. Check off. Let's send you home. And that was basically it. And I was like, okay, I mean, something happened. I experienced a lot of PTSD symptoms myself. I had a lot of nightmares. I had panic attacks, things like that. Eventually I was able to seek out professional help, but I wish it was a way that the healthcare system was different where it just automatically happened. Even if quote, the pregnancy was normal, it's still a life change becoming a mom for the first time, the second time, the third time is a huge life change. And so those things need to be put into place to help moms, especially preeclampsia survivors, because it's a big traumatic experience that happened to them. Another thing I wanted to touch on is preeclampsia affects the whole family unit. It doesn't just affect mom, doesn't just affect the baby. It affects the partners as well, husbands, boyfriends, whatever it is. And their trauma is different, right? They didn't experience all the physical things. They didn't experience emergency surgery. They didn't experience seizures. They didn't experience high blood pressure, but they watched it all happen to their partners. They watched as their partners got wheeled away to emergency surgery. They watched as their babies were born. Still, they watched as their babies got sent to the NICU. And that's a traumatic experience themselves. And partners matter too. And many times they don't know where to turn to, right? They're watching their partner and they're wanting to be the strong one for their partner who went through all the physical things with preeclampsia. They want to help them recover. They want to help their baby. And that's something that's extremely important too, because mental health of everyone involved in the family unit is important. And it's so constantly that society tells us that becoming a mom is the greatest thing to ever happen and should always be happy and nothing bad has ever happened. With preeclampsia survivors, this is extremely damaging because what happened wasn't, you know, quote, normal. It was completely unnormal and in some cases completely unnatural. You know, maybe they were the last ones to meet their baby. Maybe they were never able to meet their baby. And those things require support to get through. And it's extremely important for preeclampsia survivors to have the mental and emotional support through this instead of just the physical. So many times the physical is just so pushed on where, you know, make sure you have the good high blood pressure, make sure you're eating all the right things, make sure you lose the pregnancy weight, make sure you do all this. But everyone forgets that the mental effects last much longer and sometimes are lifelong. I'm grateful I was able to recover. For the most part, I consider myself recovered from the mental effects through, you know, therapy and medication and things like that. But it's extremely important that everyone remembers that preeclampsia is not just physical, it is mental, and that's important. Thanks for letting me share this experience about it. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much, Courtney, for sharing your story. Wow. Do you guys have any questions for each other? I have a question. Anyone that wants to answer can answer. I don't know if you guys covered this during your presentation, but if you have preeclampsia in one pregnancy, do you have it in multiple pregnancies? Uh, you're at risk. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, please go ahead. 
you're definitely at risk for uh, preeclampsia. Again, if you've had health syndrome or eclampsia, you're also at risk for preeclampsia or the other versions of it. Um, about 20% of people will have a preeclampsia experience again in the subsequent pregnancy. So the, the number is a lot lower and yet you are at higher risk than say somebody who didn't have preeclampsia in their first pregnancy. Okay. Is it hereditary? Does it it is. There is a, oh. there is some familial genetics, um, not for everyone, but for some people. Yes. Amazing. Okay. I think that was my questions. Does anyone else have any questions? I just wanted to say, um, Courtney made, I mean, her presentation was fantastic. The mental health aspect is, um, is definitely overlooked. Um, and we come out of these pregnancies feeling sometimes betrayed uh, by either, you know, uh, physicians not listening to us or, um, you know, taking our, you know, our own experiences uh, into play in, in, in the decision-making and our care. Um, and then we leave these, you know, pregnancies and we, we have all of this, you know, trauma built up in there. And, and then we're just told, oh, you're just anxious or you're just whatever. And yet doctors aren't prescribing that treatment. Like Courtney said, it should just be automatic. Um, this is a traumatic time to, to say I'm anxious, but to not do anything about it is not good care in my, um, in, in my, you know, opinion. So I really appreciate, um, especially her, uh, her presentation today, because I think it's so important. Absolutely. All of you guys were amazing. Now I do have another question. Is there a specialist for preeclampsia or just your, really your, your gynecologist, I'm going, your, um, your doctor. I'll jump, in. Yeah, I'll jump in and answer that question. Actually, I want to share before I go into that from with the last question, the mental health and getting therapy, I have no problem calling, um, but making sure that the our, our significant others um, have the assistance that they need is really important. Um, my maternal fetal health medicine doctor, she, of course, monitored me throughout the pregnancy. Um, but if by chance you should have continued to have uh, postpartum preeclampsia like I did, there are cardiologists that specialize in that. And again, as I shared earlier, luckily the hospital where I was, what my doctors are, they made that appointment for me prior to being discharged from the hospital because I didn't even think about it. I didn't think about it being a trauma. I'm just, I've gone through so much and many losses and I've gone through IVF and nine cycles and I've gone through transfers that didn't work. So I didn't even think about that part, but thankfully um, they did make that recommendation. They made that appointment and she actually, um, the female, she actually works with preeclampsia patients who it always doesn't go away before you're discharged and you may have issues afterwards. And again, we don't talk about it. We don't know, um, but there are doctors that can assist. Um, I just wanted to add, like I have a very good friend. I interviewed her for my podcast as well. Dr. Fitzgerald, she's here uh, in the United States, but she's based out of Ohio. She's actually, <clears throat> excuse me. She's an OPGYN, but she is specialized in preeclampsia. So maybe if you have a next session, you can invite her and she can always, she's done tons of research on it. And I also wanted to just quickly add the perspective that I've worked in uh, UK and I've worked in Europe and then American health system. 
And um, in UK, you actually have, um, you know, people who come up to you, you have uh, these midwives who come after your births, they provide mental health resources, not just for preeclampsia, but generally, and also in Europe, you tend to have uh, more of like a holistic approach to healing from um, birth, because they believe it's like a traumatic, even if you have a normal birth, it's traumatic. But obviously, it's different in United States versus other countries. That's amazing. Now, I do have a question as well, Dr. James, with the suicide rate rising as well, and with preeclampsia, a lot of individuals tend to turn over to suicide. They think that's the answer. What do you say to someone who has experienced preeclampsia and maybe considering ending their lives? Uh, postpartum.net is a really great resource. It's Postpartum International. Um, you don't have to be postpartum. Um, you could be, you know, currently pregnant or even years um, after your pregnancy if um, this trauma is, is, you know, causing thoughts of self-harm um, to reach out to them. They have really great online resources. So if you're, and they also have local resources kind of all over the world. Um, but they have uh, peer groups and mentorship and uh, lots of resources available at, um, you know, online at no cost. Um, and then they can give you local resources as well. So I, uh, that's where we refer uh, most everyone. Postpartum International is postpartum.net. Um, and they have a phone number that you can call and speak to somebody live. Thank you. I do have another question as well in regards to domestic violence and preeclampsia. As you mentioned, Dr. Amberine, earlier, there is a, it intertwines. And so we do need to address that issue as well. Now, what if a woman is experiencing domestic violence in her relationship and she does not know what to do? What do you recommend, Dr. Amberine? Um, thank you. Um, I'm also a global ambassador for uh, domestic violence survivors. And um, yes, I have been doing a lot of research on it. There are many um, you know, resources available and I can always pass on the links. Uh, and particularly for pregnant women, there are actually now specialized uh, resources that they can turn to and um, they can hopefully uh, empower themselves to either leave the situation immediately or at least make sure that they're safe enough till they have um, a a positive pregnancy outcome. And after that, they can address uh, the situation. Thank you, Dr. Embry. Thank you, ladies. Um, any more questions or any comments about today's event? Very um, educational. I learned a lot about the condition. Thank you guys so much again for sharing your story. Okay, without um, any more questions or comments, we will go ahead and proceed with the closing remarks from our host, Rajalia Sabat. Thank you. Thank you to all of our amazing speakers. Thank you to our sponsors and thank you everyone for attending today's conference. Wow, my goodness, you all are brave souls for coming forward today. I commend you. And I will never forget, I spoke with a gentleman. He's become a really good friend of mine. And he talked about his story and how he lost his wife. Unfortunately, he could not be here with us today, with us today because it's very difficult for him what he experienced. He lost his wife and the child. And so this is what we need to talk about, the truth. And the truth is preeclampsia can cause someone to lose their life and the baby. Preeclampsia can cause trauma. And so we need to talk about it. And so I'm so grateful for each and every one of you for coming forward and sharing your stories. And by showing up today, 
you all have let others know that they are not alone. Because oftentimes in our society, preeclampsia is not spoken about enough. And so a lot of people believe that they are alone. But here's the reality. They are not alone. So thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you. It's because of you today and moving forward, people know that they're not alone. And you know, one of my favorite verses is Joshua 1.9. It states, haven't I commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged for your Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. Therefore, whomever you believe in God, higher power, you're not alone. And so never give up. You may be facing a difficult time right now, but I'm here to let you know, get back up and keep up the good fight. You know, Dr. Ambreen talked about domestic violence earlier. And for those of you who may not know, I am a domestic violence survivor. I almost lost my life, death by strangulation in a domestic violence relationship four years ago. And so that is a very, very serious matter. And we do need to talk about it. Courtney talked about mental health and Kara, and, and, and we talked about suicide. We talked about a lot of different factors that are not being spoken about. And so I'm just grateful again for each and every one of you for bringing these topics to the forefront and continuing to do so. Thank you. And now we're going to close out with prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Father, for today. We thank you, Father, for this day that you have made, and we're assuming and rejoicing it. We thank you for each and every person on this panel, Father, that shared their story, Father. We thank you right now for the strength in the mighty name of Jesus. We ask you to continue to strengthen them more today, Father, through their journey, Father. Continue to touch them, Father, wherever they go. Continue to allow them to touch other people that, that hears their story, because their story is their superpower. Their voice is their superpower, Father. We thank you right now for their journey. We thank you for the ones that are listening right now, Father. We ask you right now to bless everyone that's here, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone that's attached to them once today, Father. And we do know that what we go through, Father, is not for us, it's for us to share with someone else. So we thank you right now, Father, for Gigi, for you birthing this in her, Father, she's pushing out right now in the name of Jesus, that she's living out her purpose, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you right now for your word because your word is true. We thank you right now that Everything that you do, Father, you have a purpose. And we just thank you, Father, for being the head and not the tail, Father. We thank you right now for this day that you've made. And we're excited rejoicing in it. We give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you and be safe.